You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. So if you plan in 5% of your project time, just to think about five years out of what this product's going to be like. And that's a very small amount of project time. And when you start thinking about um, five years out, you have to start acknowledging that people leave, products die, things end. I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, And that was Joe McClod, my guest on this edition of the show, talking about how companies can begin to address a much neglected area of experience design, and that's what happens during the end phase of a person's relationship with a product or service. I'm in the middle of reading Joe's book, Ends, which explores this topic, and that's really the subject for today's discussion. Before I tell you a bit more about Joe and how he came to write the book and be a guest on the podcast, I wanted to remind you about our MEX jobs board. This is the service that we've introduced to connect all you talented folks out there in the MEX community with companies and roles that share our values of putting user-centered design right at the heart of, of digital. Now, if you're looking to hire and you want to connect with the MEX community, the MEX Jobs Board is the best place to do it. You can add your job post online. It takes less than three minutes to post something up there. Uh, and we'll highlight it across all of our MEX channels, the newsletter, Twitter, this podcast. Uh, there's a fee of £139 plus VAT, uh, and that gets you your listing featured for 30 days. There's already a wealth of interesting roles up there, um, things from leading digital departments through to design roles for people who are just starting out in their careers. Uh, so if you want to check it out, um, all the listings and details of how to add your own roles are at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. Uh, I'll also put a link in that to the show notes. So back to Joe McClod and today's chat. So I met Joe through a friend of the show, Laura Roberts, uh, who's been a great source of feedback on the podcast and introductions to various different guests. But it was one of those intros where I found myself wondering why we hadn't really met before. Joe's been working on experience design, particularly for mobile context, since 1998. Uh, there was a time uh, with Nokia where he helped to streamline packaging. He helped develop mobile services for pregnant women in Africa. I did some fascinating work on the way mobile phones light up. Uh, more recently, he has been helping to build us too, which I guess is now one of the most influential independent design agencies out there in, in the digital world. Um, and all along the way with this journey, and we talk about this quite a bit during our chat, Joe was having experiences which made him wonder why so many companies couldn't get their heads around planning for elegant, meaningful closure experiences when customer relationships came to an end. Now, those thoughts became an interest. The interest became some talks and articles, and eventually he realized he had to write a book on the subject. And I must confess, I haven't yet finished it, but the hundred or so pages that I've read so far 
have been some of the most provocative and refreshing that I've come across for some time. And I thoroughly recommend it. And I'll put a link in the show notes to where it's on sale through Amazon and Joe's website, etc. But in the meantime, here's Joe McLeod and I talking all about it. Hope you enjoy. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Now, this is possibly a weird place to start, but the book that you've written is really all about the human tendency to overlook the end uh, or the offboarding process, as you call it within the book, of products and services, uh, even the offboarding of, of human beings themselves. And all the time that I've been reading it, so I'm about halfway through so far, I've been wondering at the back of my mind, how did you feel when you came to the end of writing the book? And it's possibly a strange question to start a podcast with, but since we're on the subject of ends and, and closures, I'd love to know what it felt like for you when you actually got to, to writing those last couple of sentences. I think it's a really interesting question, actually. I, although I get asked a lot about what's the end going to be like, you know, people are mocking me and then I, I, I come back with some witty anecdote about what's going to be like at the end it, in terms of emotionally uh, you feel a bit lost it's sort of been a journey of three years of doing it full-time and before that it was like 10 to 15 years I've been thinking about this area and sort of researching it in the background so it felt a little bit of a loss it feels like you've been on this project for and, and such an enormous journey on so many and challenge on so many levels that I got to the end and I was a little bit sad. <laughs> and uh, then you start having to market the book and stuff like that. So, yeah, although it seems like, hey, I've got to the end, it was actually something very different. And um, you do reflect on endings and closure. And part of the book is about um, talking about how we need to reflect on what went past when we complete something and end something. And, and I guess to some degree, I was reflecting on how much I enjoyed the journey of writing the book and researching the subject matter. Well, that's one of the things that I've taken away from the, the roughly sort of half that I've read so far is that emphasis that you place on that missing emotional element around the ending of things, be they products or services or whatever it is that in some ways, humans have got to this point where they try to avoid or not pay enough attention to how it feels when something comes to an end. There's a huge amount of emphasis, particularly in the world of product design, placed on all of the emotions around starting something new and convincing someone to do something new, uh, but much less on that, that end part. Was there a particular experience that, that you had which got you thinking about that in the first place? Because as you say, I know this is something that for you goes back over a decade, many years that you've been pondering these things. But was there a moment that got you really thinking about that and started that train of thought? Absolutely. There was two experiences I had, and both of which were in sort of the mid noughties about 2004, maybe 2005. Um, in the UK and I'm sure many of your listeners will remember this, is that there's a voice recognition system that Orange brought out called Wildfire. 
And Wildfire promised to be this sort of uh, digital secretary audio thing on your phone that would take your phone calls and messages and organize your life. And the ambition was very high, and but the execution and the reality was terrible. So I signed up for this and started using it. And I'd spend all day talking to Wild, well, shouting at Wildfire, really. I'd say, Wildfire, play me my messages. And I'd be out and on a road somewhere, you know, because you're in a mobile phone, for example. And she'd always, or, or it would always say, sorry I don't understand you sorry I don't understand you and um it got so frustrating I hated wildfire with such a passion that I didn't really want to end the relationship in a sort of cold emotionless way because I hated it so much I wanted to end it in a sort of very emotional way I sort of wanted to throttle wildfire until its horrible avatar eyes died and um that sort of made me start thinking about how barren our endings are they're emotionless where our starting experiences uh, around any sort of service and product experiences are very emotional they give you an emotional promise a uh, self-actualization so that was one of the experiences and the other one i was um teaching at um central st martin's in london at the time on a design course there and um set the sort of cliche brief of uh, we should design um, let's talk about waste and rubbish in the in the environment and then everyone goes away and uh, they all come back with more stuff they've created and it occurred to me at that point we just don't know we can't we haven't got a vocabulary about endings or not or the end or offboarding of waste and we always start with another new relationship. Uh, so yeah, those two experiences together really made me start thinking about endings. And and thereafter, I sort of dug into it a bit. I'd done a small project back then, and then thereafter, it was always something in the background which was ticking by. And uh, in the last three, four years, it's something I had to deal with, and I got on and started looking into it in a lot more detail. And what I found, I felt was just enormous and really exciting and and um so I sort of had to write a book about it and uh, that's why the book it started so that's interesting because um obviously it was that that genesis of it in those those life experiences that you had but then for a number of years uh you weren't in a position to, to write the book you were doing other things um I know you spent some time working at companies like Nokia. You also had a formative role with the design agency Us2 as well. Were there things that you saw in that environment, either in-house somewhere like Nokia uh, or working with agency clients, which developed those ideas into something which then became that that much more pressing impetus that led to actually starting the book and, and getting that process going? So, yeah, exactly. So I, what I, I was doing... I had done freelance bits before, and then I had spells, as you point out, at Nokia, which is an enormous... This was when Nokia was doing really well. We were making God knows how much. We were um, enormously dominant at the time, I think pretty much 55% or even larger in terms of market share in the mobile phone business. It's gigantic. 
and enormous product lines. I mean, we really wouldn't turn a factory on until it was like over a good couple of million were going to, uh, phones were going to roll out of it. So you had like ever such a lot of um, noise and focus on creating things, getting it out the door and getting it in people's hands. But I rarely, if ever, I think I heard any discussions about a long-term responsibility of these things in terms of an ending. People discussed the environmental consequences of um, waste and maybe um, the materials they were using, but it was very much a background thing. But it, there wasn't anything to do with the consumer experience of offboarding or ending. And so that was in the product industry, and I was in also interaction design wasn't much in there. No, I was doing some work for service industry as well. We hardly ever talked about emotional uh, endings as an experience for consumers. And then the digital industry with us two for like five years or so, nothing either. And and as you point out, I'm experiencing this and I'm witnessing the absence of these things. But at the same time, I'm looking at for inspiration elsewhere. So as I point out in the book, the, the, we have very good coherent endings we create as humans in, in narrative. So films have very coherent endings, books have coherent endings, games have coherent. So there's not an excuse to say that we don't as humans create endings and we can make man-made or human-made endings. And uh, with that in mind, there's no excuse to not have off-boarding experiences in our consumer experiences. Is there something potentially sinister about that, particularly within product businesses? I mean, when I think about the mobile phone business, for instance, and that's a business that you know, I've seen, I guess, from almost its emergence through to a period of sort of relative maturity where it is now. And it sounds like your career arc has followed yeah. a similar sort of timeline as well. And yeah, you know, we've gone through this period, as you say, like with Nokia, for instance, when yeah, they were extraordinarily dominant and it was all about the increase in volumes every year and getting these products into people's hands for the first time. Um, but then as that industry began to mature, obviously it, it changed. The dynamic became more about how do you get people tied into a particular brand? How do you get them to continue to buy the next new thing to keep that engine of growth going within a mobile telecoms business? And I mean, it's very difficult, I think, to, to put your finger on particular culture within a company, say, or particular culture within industry, uh, and suggest that it is something sort of sinister or, or untoward. But um, there is, to me at least, that that sense that uh, if you look at the logic of it, there was very much a vested interest within the, the mobile industry, and there still is to this day, uh, to really get people to continue buying the next latest greatest uh, and not to really think too much about what happens to all of those devices that certainly for people you know, who live in advanced developed markets they probably now have a whole portfolio of them sitting around in, in drawers and, and doing nothing um, and until such time as there's actually a bit of an incentive for those companies to think more carefully about what happens to those devices instead of them going into a drawer uh, there's not really um the sense that there, there's going to be much impetus for action. No, um, absolutely. I think what I've discovered, though, and what I put forward in the book is that we 
too easy and probably too quickly blame industry for some of these ills when actually it's a very deep societal problem that goes way back hundreds of years to to a point um where we used to have clear responsibility and a, a visible actionable ending to our consumer experiences so if you think of the back in like the 14th 15th century we would have consumed things on our kitchen table, the waste from which would have gone to the animals, the waste from the animals would have gone on the fields, the fields would have uh, blossomed and harvested, and then we would have consumed those food again. And each of those moments are actionable and visible by that person and the other people around them, and, and they're understandable. But over, over a period of time since then, and through the Industrial Revolution, We've um, distanced ourselves from actionable, visible endings, and not in a conscious way. This has um, come about from two things that happened. Firstly, there was a quickening of consumption, which also attached our identity to it. So it, the the quickening of consumption went through the department store and uh, sort of the easy accessible credit and and then you've got the public internet services some sort of the world wide web and amazon's one click shopping etc cetera, etc cetera. but now we're consuming things which are our identity so we consume look i've posted this picture i'm in this place look here i am etc cetera, etc cetera. those are the things that we consume now we've attached our identity and um we're doing that rapidly and more rapidly and more rapidly and on the other side Another thing started to happen from that point. As the Industrial Revolution happened, it, it distanced us from actionable waste in industry, where we used to create things ourselves, and we could, we could hone those things to have less waste and be responsible for that waste. But as soon as we all started moving into factories, our personal responsibility of waste started to become more distant. And then our sort of social concept of waste and actionable waste and and um, became more distant. When you when you think about something like when Corolla Corolla um, was sort of understood a bit more with Jon Snow and the idea of germs. I mean, imagine how crazy that must have been to people that, oh, have you heard about germs? And then, no, what are they? And people say, oh, they'll kill you and you can't see them. They're invisible. That must have blown people's mind at the time when you were pretty much um, able to action any waste around you. And as these things happen, we start to distance ourselves, not consciously, but emotionally. We've, as, as we've technology has advanced, we've gone, even getting to the moon, when we got to the moon, we really turned around and looked at the earth in a very different way. And we saw how vulnerable it was. And, and it kicked off the green movement, the modern green movement came out of the the moon landing, the sort of the when we talk about climate change, years ago, hundreds of years ago, we used to chuck everything in the sea, and people would say, "Oh, look, don't don't chuck everything in the sea; you'll damage it." And no one believed it because they thought the sea's so big, you can't possibly damage it. And the same argument now goes to the goes to climate change. We can possibly damage the climate; it's so big, <laughs> and yeah. Yet we've been talking about it since 1988. And even the man-made or human-made things that we, we've created, the sort of the global financial crisis, that was, uh, that was our own system we created, and, and it collapsed because of rotten waste in it. 
and we have no actionable ending to that. So we've turned it into packages that we can reconsume and banks take on as dirty debt. And so all of these things have, have come together. They, they've, these two distancing and this quickening have gone hand in hand to a point now where we're so far removed as consumers and society from anything to do with endings, we have no vocabulary for it anymore. Well, it's, it's interesting to seek the origins of that in our psychology as, as humans and how that, that's changed over time. One, one of the things which struck me within the book is firstly how you break down the stages of how we our relationship with different products and, and life events into those stages and identify where the, the closure part, the offboarding part happens, but also about some of those fundamentals in, in how we think about the need for closure. And in the book, you talk about that difference between the urgency tendency and the permanency tendency and how that kind of frames our relationship with, with endings, that need that we want something definitive and quick to signify that something has ended and yet at the same time there needs to be that sort of satisfaction about its 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 long-term prospects and its long-term meaning for us and that yeah perhaps sometimes those things are complementary perhaps sometimes they're that they're in conflict uh, and obviously the book goes into both both physical things and and digital things but have have you seen a difference in the work that you've done so far in the way that urgency tendency and permanency tendency exhibit themselves specific to digital versus physical products uh, or is it all part of the same c- continuum in the customer's mind i i think both of them have changed a lot in especially as you point out in the emergence of digital, um, especially for, for financial products in particular, I think, we used to rely on a very much a permanence tendency and our banking, financial service type relationships have always been very long-winded. So some of the most longest products you'll probably purchase in your life, your, your mortgage will probably be 30, 25 years, and that's longer than pretty much any product you can imagine. You, you, the car you buy, for example, will probably only last 10, 12 years. And uh, even your your bank relationship, on average, those are into the 20-year life cycles. So there was, historically, a lot of permanency in that. But uh, the financial services industry has started to become distracted with a lot of the technology. And on some levels, that has helped it uh, provide better products for us, more more coherent products. And um, But I think on some levels, we've turned some of those financial service products into digital products that are more about noodling around with your finances instead of actually having a reliance on their permanency. So you're We've changed some of those digital, those financial services products into uh, products that have um, the immediacy tendency. For example, there was a product I keep getting uh, junk mail for called um, Retire Ready. Now, I think that's hysterical. When I'm, I'm only in my 40s, I'm probably going to have to, well, work till I die probably by the time we get there. But, you know. I'm looking at like another 20 to 30 to 40 years of living. So I'm not really retire ready. Um, My finances certainly are retire ready. My investments aren't retire ready. But they've put this on an iPad um, and they're pushing it as an iPad app. And I'm thinking, 
I don't think that service is going to be around in 30 years. That company might be around in 30 years. The iPad certainly won't be around in 30 years, and this app certainly won't be around in 30 years. So it becomes this thing where you, you lose credibility on the, on the level of uh, permanency because you've, you've been attracted, or that company's been attracted, to pushing things on the immediacy tendency. Well, that is one of the, the really interesting things, I think, about the characteristic of, of digital experiences is that, uh, as you say, it's now um, much more viable, much more cost-effective to give people the ability to to noodle, in, in your words, you know, to have these multiple interactions, to have more day-to-day -day control over things like their, their finances. Uh, but there is also that sense of, not just will the the company, the entity behind that that service, the brand, whatever you want to call it, be around, but will those individual capabilities, which might now be something quite critical to your life in a way that maybe a casual post on social media or something like that isn't, is it going to be possible to have access to every part of that experience that you would want further into the future. And, and that feels like quite a big question mark hanging over these things, which um, I guess is a concern, you know, for, for me, just as a, an individual consumer, when I think about something like that and committing something as serious as my retirement finances, for instance, to, um, uh, you know, to, to a digital entity like that, having that uncertainty would really give me, give me pause for thought. But is there a way that, that companies can become better at communicating that sort of thing and reassuring users that the new whizzy thing that's out there and the the new whizzy company which is all into its fast iterations and all that kind of good stuff which we know and love from digital is actually going to stay the course and, and that those things are going to be available when you need them in the future exactly i think it's a very pertinent question i i, I think also it's worth reflecting it's not just a digital thing then if you look at the pensions that we have in the UK, we get pension pensions provided by each employer. So on average, we'll have about 11 different employers in our lifetime, according to the Department for Work and Pensions. Each one of those will give you a pension pot. And, and that's been around for maybe 10, 15 years, or maybe even 20 years now. Um, Age Concern done some research on, on these pension pots, and they reckon one in four of these pension pots are going missing. And that's not out of um, uh, so anything sort of conspiracy theory. They're just going missing because we're not very good at keeping track of each other for the, the course of a career. So like your 40 to 50-year career path, it's just hard to keep track of people as they move. They change names. They change sex even they changed partners and etc etc so so things all all change uh ever such a lot and what i argue for in the book is more about a reflection around long-term endings designing for endings will get a far more coherent quality deliverable for something which should be in the permanency category to to bring up the the previous um discussion and at the moment, I think we, we don't do that. We're so fascinated with driving new products that sort of 10, 15 years ago, we drove a product called Pension Pots, and no one thought about how to deliver them long term. <laughs> so we, we're going to have an enormous pension crisis in like the next 20 years, I think.
because of these pension pots weren't thought about in the long term. Yeah, the, the way in which these uh, which new services, new, new products are created seems obviously to be the, the origin of where some of this lack of understanding about ends come from. And, and you cite an example within the book of Sky and how they introduced this sometimes hour-long after-sales conversation where someone wanted to leave the service, but they were being essentially arm-twisted into trying to continue in some way, shape, or form with Sky, and that that created a really negative customer experience, which ended up being covered in the press. It ended up with people trying to find workarounds to essentially get out of this circular conversation that they are in. And I remember reading um, how you described it, that it almost seemed as if culturally the organization couldn't imagine why anyone would want to leave the service after they'd put so much effort into the onboarding process and so much effort into convincing customers. And it's sort of easy to see where that comes from within organizations, because clearly the top line growth comes from selling people new things or selling additional things to to existing customers. Whereas it's much harder, perhaps, to measure the value to an organization of a good closure experience, at least using the the metrics that we have currently. Now, I mean, you've been in the agency world, for instance, with with us too, and you must have been through those kind of sales cycles with clients where you're trying to convince them of the value of various steps of the process and which bits of the product they should focus their attention on. I I mean, how do you think you go about that? How how would you, in in the, the us two days, for instance, have convinced a client, you know what, it might not generate us any headline sales in the next six months or 12 months, but we really need to focus on this closure experience. How do you make that argument in a compelling way? The, I think it's very, very difficult. I mean, culturally, we've, uh, we don't think about it at all. And as you point out, we uh, drive for growth. Culturally, our business culture is drive for growth, acquire, acquire, acquire more consumers, et cetera, et cetera. So there's very little um, appetite to think about endings or because it feels like a negative experience. Yet, we know that we're going to die. We, you know, All of us have a pension pot. We know there's an autumn of our lives and a winter of our lives. Yet, um, we can't acknowledge that in our, in our industrial or our, our business culture. So you do end up in these conversations where, in fact, a, a small example of it, I think, which reflects it, and it came up all the time uh, building apps for companies, is they'll come to you with a budget for the first app and the first release of the app. And as any company or any person you know who builds apps, you never get to the best scenario on the first one. You build, you get iteration after iteration. You know, some of the products that we won awards for and were top of um, their categories in the app store, that was like on... Uh, sprint that was like on iteration 18 or something out of you know and it would go on for 40 or something iterations or new releases so you never get that first release isn't the nailed one you can apply more and more polish and iterate and iterate so there's a very short term thing of like oh we've done it blah blah and then with our customer services and or or our consumer relationships we always assume that this relationship is going to go on forever so I often, there's a, a few things I, I ask of businesses after I do the talk or um, when, when I get asked about in interviews, et cetera, is that, that um, you, you really need to start thinking, 
now you know about endings and what they are, the next thing is to persuade others about it. And then I give examples of how they can persuade others. But one of the things I do do is suggest looking at it this way. So if you plan in 5% of your project time, just to think about five years out of what this product's going to be like. And that's a very small amount of project time. And but when you start thinking about, especially digital products and, and many service products, when you start thinking about um, five years out, you have to start acknowledging that people leave, products die, things end. So then you start asking real questions about endings. Yeah, that additional time horizon, getting people to project that far out, feels like yeah, quite a, a compelling way of, of making it real, which is often one of the, the difficult things when you're creating a digital service in the abstract is, is getting those things to clarify the urgency of them to clarify in the product team's mind and why in a situation of limited resources, limited time that they need to focus their, their minds on that. I wonder whether you see differences in the enterprise relationship with these kind of things versus individual consumers. And it's something that anecdotally I've noticed, just for instance, in, in looking around for bits of software, say, to run uh, you know, some of the operations behind the, the MEX business, uh, is that there's more focus placed in those kind of products on what your uh, end game options are. Say, for instance, if you want to migrate somewhere else, because in that enterprise culture, there's, I guess, a, a value placed around things like ownership of business data. Sometimes there's a regulatory responsibility to know that you can extract your data from a particular platform provider, for instance, or that you can't have a single point of failure. Whereas with individual consumers, maybe there's there's less of a, a sense of urgency around that, less of a, well, as you say within the book, less of a vocabulary that people are equipped with to be able to to ask those questions. I mean, is that something that you see manifest in the research that you do, that the companies uh, are more focused on this when they're thinking about their digital tools than, than individual consumers? I, I think that's an interesting point. I think, um, I wonder if one of the reasons that happens is because legitimately companies go bankrupt and then and then other companies get knock-on consequences of being owed hundreds of thousands. But if an in individual goes bankrupt, it, it very, there's very little impact on many businesses because you're providing a business for many, many uh, tens of thousands potentially. Another one which I, I think is interesting is how much big business and I think governments got really rolled over in the early dot-com days of um, being promised all of these special solutions which we would provide from the digital sort of technology industry. And they signed up for these very dramatic, uh, long contracts, which were very um, enclosed and had very little ability to come out of. I know somebody who works at the in the government digital services team, well, a few people in fact, and they often cite back to terrible contracts that the government signed with big corporates from 10, 20, uh, 10 15 years ago. And uh, those were terrible to get out of and provided awful exit points. So I, I think maybe as a point of learning on those big, horrible experiences that, yeah, maybe is different in those enterprise relationships. Perhaps it, it's um, later in the book, which is as I say, I've, I've got about halfway through and I haven't got to yet, but I'm wondering, do you, in your mind, have a, 
a benchmark now for what represents a, a good end for a, a digital product. You know, there are a set of characteristics like being able to extract your data, being able to migrate it to another provider, that those sort of things which you, you have developed a, a checklist for, or does it vary considerably from category to category? It does vary considerably because in digital, it's very different to in products. And some of, some of them in services, for example, is very different to both. But um, I, I try not to get into the micro. So I keep it more philosophical, not philosophical, but more of a approach level. So when I, when I tell people what to do, I, I, I ask them to do these four things. And that's a good closure experience, I suggest, is consciously connected to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers that are actionable by the user in a timely manner. And those, it, it sounds, um, and then I go into different examples of those, so what is consciously connected. So when I mean consciously connected, when we sign up to anything, we have a, an emotional attachment to that. We get sold emotions through advertising and marketing. And so when we have that off-boarding experience, it's important that we come back and reflect on those emotions to unravel them and give uh, a level of um, meaning to what we just experienced. And I think the interesting thing is that we can benefit out of this. A brand can benefit enormously out of these off-boarding experiences by applying emotion again to, to justify them. And then those emotional triggers should be quite similar to the beginning as well. So if you think back to um, movie uh, techniques from the sort of 50s, 60s, they had um, very explicit onboarding, offboarding into any narrative. So you'll have a, a narrator which had a similar inter introduction and they would introduce in a type of way. They'll also appear again at the end and wrap up the whole the whole um, story. So you have that consistent arc on both ends. And it has to be actionable by the user. If it's not actionable, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't um, click home. So we need to do something about it because as consumers, we get away with just um, leaving things too often. So it's important that we action these things to say it's over. And um, I think that that triggers us to take a more of a responsibility in consumption because as consumers we do get away with atrocious amounts and then it has to be done in a timely manner we can't leave that these things linger and we can't also um make them too 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 quick they have to be meaningful and end in some some sort of um some sort some sort of um timely important way so those four things i recommend consciously connected to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers that are actionable by the user in a timely manner. That, that idea about the, the, the kind of closure, that desire for something actionable, something definitive, yeah, that, that's a theme which has really struck me through, throughout the book. And I know at one point you talk about the how physical tokens of some kind or other have been our sort of standard expectations of that. I think you make the example of, you know, you close an account, for instance, with a financial services company. And a few days later, if all goes well, you get a little piece of paper in the post, which gives you that sense of closure. And, and all it really is, is a, a physical token, a physical representation of that, which in the consumer's mind allows them to say, you know, yes, they've done what they said they're going to do. I can now draw 
align under this. And obviously, as you say in the book, you tend to focus at a bit more of a strategic level for companies about how they go about doing this. But do you think it's it's possible to create digital tokens which generate that similar feeling of of closure? Um, Or is there a value to there being a cross-channel element to that, that there's an inherent value in the customer's mind of, yes, it was a digital service, but when I ended it, I got a physical confirmation that it was ended, that that is somehow more reassuring than if that that closure token only exists in the, the digital environment. I, I think they, as I say, like they, the consciously connected thing also represents the manner in which something's done at the beginning needs to re- be reflected in the manner at the end. So if it's a digital service that you signed up for in a digital quick sort of like putting in usernames, you've got to sort of unravel that in, in the other end. So I think what's important in digital isn't necessarily a physical token, but it's to say, what's going to happen to my data is that we, we know this much about you. We are going to erase that now or do something with it or this thing has happened, then you're, uh, you will be protected in the future of, of this lingering asset. And at the moment, we just end digital services and that all of those assets are just lingering. So if you sign off many digital services, your presence is still on them from whether it be on the database or represented in the public realm online. So what it's important that we pull a line under that to protect the consumer, that individual from undermining their their emotions or their psychology, which is the, the big thing for digital. Yeah, but very much so. Now, as part of our Mech's Design Talk podcast, we do always have this tradition, Joe, of asking each of our guests to bring along something for our, our virtual show and tell and all this talk about the you know, longevity of digital services and how we ensure ongoing access to things um, has got me reflecting on the example that I see you've put into the show notes here. Do you want to, to share that with the listeners and tell us a bit about what you found? Because I yeah, think it, it very much to. relates to this theme. It's a, a little bit UK centric, I guess, and this is a bit of nostalgia for people of a certain age that we had a very popular TV show called Blue Peter as kids, and we'd watch it, I think it was on every Thursday or something, on, on children's BBC. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, there was a great fanfare of um, lots of people trying to create this big uh, doomsday project. It was, a, it was the anniversary, I think it was the 400, I can't remember, so many hundred years from uh, the previous doomsday project. And... Um, so we were going to create this new doomsday project, doomsday book in the UK. So thousands of um, pictures were collected at great cost. It cost 2.5 million at the time. And um, this was in 1986. And they collected maps and images of people and all sorts of anecdotes and lots of video and captured it all and put it onto a laser disc. This was the... This was the great big new technology. Of yeah, the time. I remember them well. I mean, they were essentially like vinyl record-sized discs for a, a computer reader. But in yeah, so it looked like a CD, but it was the size of a you know the, a, a traditional vinyl record, as I recall. Yeah, and they were sort of gold color as well. They were very jazzy looking, weren't they? They were pretty cool actually. 
And um, so everyone, put, well, the BBC and some other big companies put this this laser disc together, and then they put it into a time capsule in 1986, and um, dug up the Blue Peter Garden and put it under the ground there, and then poured some concrete on top of it, and uh, and then said they were going to dig it up 20 years later. And so <laughs> 20 years later comes along. I guess it's like 2004 or something, or or 99, maybe they dug it up in the 2000s, and they dug it up, and um, <clears throat> they pulled out this laser disc, and they couldn't find one laser disc player to play it on. It was um, it was so out of kilter with all of the technology advancement that had gone on to the time. There wasn't any readers, so this kickstarted a big project called the um, Chameleon Project or Chameleon Consortium. And loads of academics from the US and UK got together and they had to they started to create these emulators of this sort of lost data. And it wasn't just this laser disc format. There was many formats that we had lost capability to read from that early sort of digital um, time, the dawn of digital time, as it were. And so eventually, after working on this project for millions of pounds they eventually read this laser disc two years later after they dug it up <laughs> which i thought was super funny but I, what i like about that anecdote or that, that story is that um is it's a great example of how fragile our technology is and it, it does make you think about the library of alexandra so that that's my offering to the to the mix library of um little well long may it be preserved because i think it, it's a very interesting one say, it really gets to the the heart of that idea about that um yeah we're so obsessed with, with coming up with the, the new and the latest and, and the greatest and doing the the best we can with digital experiences in the moment but particularly when it's something like this which is inherently about a historical archive of some kind if we're not giving thought to how that might exist and be universally accessible in the future then we're doing it a bit of a, a disservice um, it makes me think it should, I, I think there's a piece up on mobileuserexperience.com somewhere. I'll, I'll try and link to it in the, the show notes, uh, where I was reminiscing a little bit about my early experiences on the web, which were all through, uh, the CompuServe service. Do you, do you remember CompuServe, Joe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. when yeah. I, I first got online, it was via CompuServe, which essentially gave you access to this walled garden of CompuServe services. Uh, and then you had a sort of a very narrow gateway, which allowed you to go out and get access to a bit of the wider web too, which gradually broadened out until CompuServe itself just became a, a, an internet service provider and then eventually disappeared. But, um, yeah, a lot of my sort of early forays and experiences into to the web and a lot of the origins, in fact, of, of the business that I still run to this day happened within that fixed environment of CompuServe, which was something that came to you on initially a floppy disk. And then I think they had CD-ROMs that you know, they would post to you or you'd get free on the cover of a magazine. And that just doesn't exist anymore. And you know, even if you had that software, the servers that it connects to um, have all been shut off now. So there's a whole part of that sort of early 
like historical archive of things that yeah maybe aren't of interest to anyone else but were important to me you know messages i exchanged with people or things that i accessed which had quite a, a formative influence on what i've gone on to do in digital which just aren't available anymore and it, it got me thinking about that idea that in some ways it's not just the the content of these things which is the important part even if you could extract that in some sort of universally accessible format without the 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 wrapper the context be that the ui of the software or some of the the interactions which came through the particular servers it was connected to if if that disappears then something has been lost to the you know the, the historical archive for future generations now in my particular case i suspect it's highly unlikely there's going to be much historical value to that stuff uh, for the the wider public, but if you put it in the context of say the way um, yeah the the messages of a prominent politician or a celebrity, for instance, are preserved for future generations when historians want to access them, it really gets you thinking about how can we preserve not just the content but also the medium through which they were enjoyed in a way that would have been recognisable to the people at the time. I, I totally agree, and I think it's one of those under-discussed uh, things around the net, net neutrality discussion is that we're talking a lot in that discussion around um, access and um, usage in the current sense, but the, the we need to also access some of those things on the on the long term, which means that what if those companies that did control the net, if that thing went ahead... What if those disappeared and would all of that knowledge go with them? And that, that's sort of what you're describing, the CompuServe example. It is an example of how bad the long-term knowledge loss would be if we did have a go down the sort of negative route of net neutrality. Yeah, and I mean, perhaps particularly relevant these days in the context of something like Twitter, for instance, where it's become a platform that people use to make uh, important public statements of some kind or another and yet it is something which is controlled essentially by a private corporation Uh, and that if for instance twitter decided to remove one of the features which uh, has an influence in how people consume it currently a lot of that sort of historical context may be lost. I mean, if you take the example of something like favorites, for instance, you, know, you can see now on a tweet how many times it was favorited over its lifetime. Uh, and that maybe gives you a context about its relative popularity compared to other people who were talking about similar issues, for instance. And there's really nothing to stop Twitter just saying tomorrow, you know what, the favorites feature has disappeared. And then when we look back at a tweet from, say, two or three years ago made by a politician, yeah. for instance, something in the, the historical archive will be absent. Um, and it would be yeah, very much an ending of sorts. Yeah, no, it's, I think, a very important issue. Well, a great example in the, the Doomsday Project, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes so people can go and get a look at what that was all about and some of that background on the wonders of Blue Peter for our listeners outside the UK, which... I just- I'll try and find the video of them digging it up because that would be quite an interesting... Um, <laughs> I wonder if somebody's put together a little uh, YouTube video of the, the story from that point of view, the Blue Peter story. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure I, I put a link in the, the show notes to that. So given that you've um, shared such a, an interesting example about the, the Doomsday Project, Joe, um, I should probably try and reciprocate. Uh, and reading your book over the last 
couple of weeks, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of, of endings and beginnings. And it happened, I was having a conversation with a, a friend, unrelated to this, but that really got me thinking about the, the topic again. Uh, and he was telling me about this show on, on BBC Radio 6 by Lauren Laverne called Memory Tapes. Have you ever heard this this Memory Tapes program? No, I haven't. No, I th- I was reading the um, thing on on your your playlist, and it was uh, I thought it sounded really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was new to me as well. The, the concept for memory tapes is that uh, the DJ asks people to get in touch and, and talk about a particular playlist or a mixtape that they created for someone else, and to talk about the, the story around it. And this one, which was actually in two thousand fourteen, um, was for someone whose friend had been deaf from birth but was about to have bilateral cochlear implant surgery, which would give them the ability to hear for the first time. So this person was tasked with creating a playlist that would be the first music that this person would ever hear once their their hearing had been restored. Uh, And I mean, when you think of the responsibility of of that, and and it kind of gets your mind going to, well, what would I put on a playlist for for someone in that context? Um, You know, what would be, would you try to go for things which you thought represented all the music that they'd missed in their life? Would you try to go for things that you thought were particularly appropriate to their personality? It it really got me... um, you know, thinking, and it, it clearly created uh, a big reaction um, on the radio too. They had literally thousands of people getting in touch uh, in response to the, the show and, and the, the story of it all. Uh, but in the context of, of this conversation, it, it made me think about that idea that yeah, you know, this was both a beginning and an end. It was really. Yeah, perhaps the main focus was on the new beginning that this person was going to be having, that they would be able to hear for the first time. But it was also the end of a really important phase, you know, that the whole um, other part of this person's life when they had lived without their hearing. And that actually, you know, it, yeah. in that that one moment, you had both a beginning and an end happening at the, the very same time. And that this wouldn't, this would probably be quite a conflicting set of emotions for that person in that, that moment. Exactly. It's a rebirth, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, and and you know, I guess it, it got me thinking about whether or not there are examples like that within this this wider context of, of products and services that we're talking about here, where you have those moments that, yeah, in the same instant, you could be caught up both in the the end and the beginning of something, um, and that yeah, that's often something which is split between two different service providers because yeah, quite naturally when you're replacing something, sometimes you're moving to a, to another provider, but that actually those are experiences which which overlap but are often designed in complete isolation from each other. Exactly, I call them aftermath targets. So in a commercial sense, we occasionally think about them, but quite often we don't think about them at all in the commercial sense. But the consumer has to go through them. So in a desirable sense, what you want is your consumer to have a sense of rebirth or they might, for, for example, if you, um, you would have a sense of rebirth if you wanted to go off and take another in another service, which is different, for example, and you're, you're free to have that rebirth. But also 
you might have reflection for example if you finished having a holiday or something a pleasant experience like a opera or something you would reflect back on that wonderful experience and then some services are just about having rest after that and not having to do that thing anymore but often we forget about this sort of aspect of the consumer's experience entirely so then we end up in these horrible avoidable aftermath places which are regret so people regret even going with that provider or they have resentment about the horrible experience they had in there or the horrible offboarding they had so you do get these things but as as businesses we never give a monkeys about them but the consumer has to go through them and that tarnishes their perception of that business i mean one of the things which strikes me about the the vocabulary that you use to to describe some of these these closure experience jokes that um they're often uh, yeah, really quite maybe subjective is the wrong word but they're, they're complex emotional terms which are associated with these moments of of closure uh, and that they're things which are really quite tricky to quantify and you know, for businesses, it's become yeah. very easy or it's become very routine to quantify all of those metrics around conversion funnels and so on and so forth that are associated with the beginning of a relationship. But it, it, it seems to me that it's a, a harder task, a more nuanced task to try and assign metrics which might gain these kind of things the significance that they need at at board level, at the very top level within companies to ensure they're actioned. Yeah, in the course of this project, have you been able to give thought to what some of those metrics might be or how you can at least provide a, a translation into um, the, the sort of actionable language which enables a board to look at something like this and say, you know, we need to take action on this today? I, I think, yeah, I agree, it's very difficult. And I often reflect on... Once upon a time, there wasn't much of an advertising or marketing industry. It really only came up over, after the Industrial Revolution, products were making, being produced at such enormous scale that they need to start building mechanisms to sell them and start understanding those, those, uh, those metrics, as you, as you call them. And um, at one point, there wasn't that in place we didn't have advertising and marketing to attract us to tickle our emotions around a purchase and but we also have we had emotions and offboarding around um, life experiences we had a vocabulary around that from places like the church and religions and when people died so in terms of the um, matrix around that sort of stuff there isn't much because it's quite a new area. And what I'm trying to do is encouraging people to think about it but, um, and and to start putting in places some of those things. So when we start to uh, define things like aftermath targets, then we can start to work out what that is and then start to make a, a measurement from quality or um, what what is good in this scenario. So I think it's very early days to do metrics, but um, I hope one day somebody will be able to work out some of the, the good ones. Uh, well, and, and hopefully your book and this project will be a significant contributor to that because it clearly is something which needs 
greater attention. And yeah, from what I've read so far in the book, it's certainly got me thinking about the, the importance of it. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the, the, the book itself as well, because um, you know, you've undertaken this as a, an independent publishing project and there's the book, but I know there are other components to it as well. You give talks around this, for instance, and you, you advise companies on it. Um, how, how's that been for you as a, an independent going off to, to start something like this and to take it through to the point where it's it's getting the level of attention that it is? I think cause when I was at us too, we had we done a lot of work with startups and we were very much in that industry. And it is like a startup. I am a, a founder, I guess, and the product is a book or the product is an idea around endings. I've tangibilized that in a book. That, so I've got a product to sell, as it were, and an offering. And all the time, I'm sort of evangelizing it. So every opportunity, I can, I'm trying to get out there or help people to understand it and, and talk about it and just chipping away at, at, um, at, at making this um, more broadly known. So that's the sort of, uh, I think, an analogy is like being a startup. And you're always trying to find out oh should i do it like this in fact a good example is taking the book from i mean i've got lots of examples of just writing and understanding how to write and that sort of journey but most recently is um taking the book into being an ebook and doing that myself so i'm now writing code again which i haven't written for 20 years and uh and trying to write code for ebooks which is a nightmare space <laughs> So yeah, there's it's a great learning experience, and I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. Now, have you given thought to the end game for this particular project as well, and what it might mean for what you want to do in the future as well? I mean, do you see this as something which will always continue with you as a, a side project, even if you go off and do other things? And have you given any thought to any of those other things that might still be left? to do in a career because I mean so far you've had a pretty diverse range of experiences all you know quite um, fundamental and, and related to some formative parts of, of how digital experiences are created but is there anything that's left that you haven't yet done that you'd like to, to have a go at? I still think there's a lot to run with the closure experiences and ends thing so now I've made a book and I've got the background philosophy down and have started to develop models and ideas around it. I'm now applying that into more practical spaces. So I'm now working, um, I'm doing some conferences which are just for financial services. For, there's two, two areas which actually I think are probably more in need of this thinking than others and that's financial services and the um, sustainability discussion and that those two uh, i think amongst many different industries that need it and um working with those groups and exampling to those groups that there is a different path than the the brutal sort of um one-dimensional culture that we have with business which is just about growth and getting numbers in that we can think about offboarding and we can think about um, what that means and we can create important beneficial offboarding experiences to consumers and your business won't collapse around itself. But um, 
that the financial services industry needs something like this to to really get back on track with consumers. Their reputation, their brand loyalty is atrociously down as a as an industry. Well, it's a, a strong message, and you know, one which I, I wish you all the best of, of luck with, because I think it raises some very important points for people to consider and. Um, yeah, thank you for both writing the book because it's certainly um, given me a lot to think about and also for coming on the, the show and, and sharing so much of the, the thinking and the, the background for it with us and, and, and with the, the listeners. Well, thanks very much, Marika. I really hope um, the listeners enjoy the, the show and hopefully maybe pick up a copy of the book and um, and hopefully they enjoy it as much as you have and it um, sparks some in, inspiration in their mind. Thanks, Joe. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that conversation has prompted a few new ideas for you. Uh, If there are particular bits that you want to follow up on, you can find detailed show notes with links to everything that Joe and I talked about, and they're at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. I'm going to be back with another episode for you very soon, Um, but before I go, I have a request for you. The best way to spread the word about this podcast is, well, you. If you can have a think about which of your friends would most enjoy having a listen, do please send them a link to mobileuserexperience.com. And, you know, if you're feeling especially glowy about what we're doing with the podcast, uh, you could even go and post a five-star review for us on iTunes, which helps bump us up the ratings and helps other people out there discover the show. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.